The second lesson comes to us this morning from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verse 2 to 13. Verse 2 to 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain, apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. And suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean. Then they asked him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah is indeed coming first to restore all things. How then is it written about the Son of Man that he is to go through many sufferings and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written about him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, of all the Christian feasts, the Transfiguration has been the one that I have struggled with the most. And maybe you have too. Maybe you came here this morning not realizing that, in fact, this is a Christian feast day. It is. It's the Feast of the Transfiguration. And as much as I've tried, I've often never really got this feast the way that I've wanted to. Um, And to top it all off, for me, it, it sort of becomes challenging because it interrupts the flow of the gospel. As you know, we've been sort of directing ourselves right through the gospel of Mark. We read all of chapter one, and then we were ready to go to chapter two. But no, the Christian year wants to pull us all the way to chapter nine immediately. It feels like out of nowhere. And then I've wondered, what am I missing? There's something to the wisdom of this Christian year that I don't quite understand. In fact, this moment in the Gospels has been celebrated above all others, not above all others, but it's been celebrated above others uh, since the second century. Early Christian theologians held this story as a moment when the glory of God was present within the life of a finite being, illuminating and confirming the idea of the Incarnation. 
An artist, if you've traveled throughout Europe or other places where you've studied art and biblical art in particular, you will have noticed that artists have been trying to capture a render of the transfiguration for for over a thousand years. This is one of the centerpieces of the gospel that is always given to us every year right before Lent. So this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. We always celebrate the Feast of the Transfiguration right before that. So before this season of Lent, the year puts before us this electrifying vision of Jesus up on the mountain with his disciples with a cloud coming over, saying, listen to him, my beloved. Remember, echoing the words of baptism. But then, as Jesus is coming down the mountain, the story asks us, what does this biblical glory mean? What does it mean in the Bible to be alive with glory? What does that mean? What we believe about God impacts how it is that we see the world. So it is good in this particular instance for us to wonder that for ourselves. What does this glory mean? Well, the disciples had an idea. They said, I think it means that we need to create these three dwellings. So then they asked Jesus, does it mean making three dwellings? One for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. You see, they were thinking, this isn't random. They were trying to connect it with the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, this would have been a way for them to practice their worship. It would have been something that they knew, something that they were familiar with. It would have been something that they did together every year, put together these dwellings in honor of people of faith. And in fact, many Jewish communities still practice this way of worship, the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's what Peter wants to do. He wants to take this this infinite picture of what glory looks like, and he wants to connect it to the worship year, right? And if we're honest, we sometimes want to do that too. We want to take the glory that we see, that we feel, that we know, and that we experience in the person of Jesus And we want to figure out how to get that to land within the scope of worship. And friends, that's important. In fact, Jesus doesn't say anything about that. He remains silent about what Peter asks. He doesn't say that it's bad, but he also doesn't say that it's good. We don't, in fact, as we get to the end of the story, we don't know if Peter made the dwellings or not. It's very possible that he could have, but that's not where the story leads us. What we do know is that Jesus isn't necessarily bothered by the dwellings, whether they're there or not, whether you sing this hymn or that hymn, whether you pray this way or that way. Jesus isn't necessarily bothered by what Peter plans to do about worship. But what Jesus is captivated by, what does drive him is this question, what does this form of glory mean for the world? What does it mean for the outworking of salvation in human history? What does it mean for the sake of the world? That's the question that Jesus is captivated by as he goes down the mountain. 
And the disciples, you see, they're slowly going to have to change their expectations. And that's not bad. That's part of human life, right? Those of you that have entered into a long-term relationship, you know that sometimes you have to change your expectations. Those of you that have entered into parenthood, you have to change your expectations. In our vocations, we change our expectations. Things that we always thought don't always turn out to be the things that happen. And the disciples are going to have to change their expectations. And it's not an easy thing to do. They hear this voice in the cloud, and they hear the news of the Son of Man being risen from the dead, and they have no way of making sense of that information. They have no bucket to put it in. You know, I love some of the stuff that we've learned about vision uh, within the, the landscape of our church. We've learned from Dr. Saskia de Friesen. And she's taught us that everything that we see, our brain is filtering, right? We put it in a bucket that we know. That's part of being human. And so the disciples hear this information. They have no bucket to put it in. Nothing at this point has said risen from the dead. And the gospel writer makes that clear. They don't know what this rising from the dead means, right? There's no narrative that they can patch that into. And they're trying to do it. You can see their wheels spinning. They're trying to figure it out. And so what they say is this to Jesus. They say, oh, you must mean Elijah. Now, they're on the right track here because in the Old Testament, what they would have known is that the coming of Elijah would have meant the end of days. So they're trying to put it all together. They're trying to say, oh, that would have been the day of resurrection, the day that Elijah was coming. So then they ask him. Why do the the scribes say that Elijah must come first? They're trying to make sense of this whole idea of the Son of Man. And Jesus affirms their intuition. He says, you've got it. You're right. You're on the right track here. Elijah is coming, and he's coming to restore all things. But then Jesus asks them a question. How is it written about the Son of Man? And then Jesus does something radical. We might have missed it. It's easy to just gloss right over it. But he does something radical on something that we need to listen to today. And he says this. He says, I tell you, Elijah has come. And they did whatever they pleased about him, just as it has been written. That would have floored the ancient first disciples. How could Elijah have come? You see, Jesus takes this narrative that they've understood their whole life, and he turns it and flips it upside down. And what he's saying to them is, it's not that you've misunderstood. It's not that you've heard it the wrong way. In fact, the story that you heard is right. But the way in which you've understood it, the way in which it's come into play in history, well, that's something that needs to be flipped upside down. He changes their narrative and changes their expectations. Friends, I want to talk about for a moment this morning this idea of whitewashing. Some of you, I know we have friends within our community here who have grown up on farms, and you might remember it as a term that was used to clean a cellar, right? Within a farm or or a barn, it's often used in that way. That combination of lime and salt and water was put within that space to cover it up so that it kind of created this antibacterial surface to keep the working space clean. 
And later, this phrase was picked up as a way of talking about covering up various information, whitewashing, right? It's a term that's used to cover things up. Stories that were whitewashed were stories where the central pieces of the narrative were covered up so that everything seemed cleaner than it actually was. And if you move farther in our history, whitewashing has become a term for letting one culture sort of take precedence over another. It's kind of a a way of, 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 of whitewashing one story over another, of covering up certain details or pieces of history that we just don't want to pay attention to. They become sort of that problem that Catherine so lovingly uh, shared with our children. And we don't want to quite face it, so we just kind of turn the page on that. And that slowly then begins to develop this dominant culture that we're sometimes not even aware of. It becomes the air that we breathe. Hollywood took a beating last year for this world of whitewashing as they cast multiple roles of people with European heritage into roles of people of color, right? That happened last year in 2017. So when Christian Bale plays um, the leading role in the story of Exodus and Kings that was directed by Ridley Scott, that, my friends, is whitewashing. Slowly allowing one culture to become one dominant over the other. Or another way of doing this is that when you use computer graphic images to change Scarlett Johansson, who is a woman of European heritage, into an Asian character for the movie Ghost in a Shell, that is whitewashing. Suddenly you've used this computer technical skill to change a European into a person of color. It's a problem. It's a problem that we want to turn the page on. And what that does is slowly but surely it means that the dominant culture starts to become the one that looks like me, right? The European. That's what the dominant culture starts to look like. And slowly but surely, other cultures that have fallen victim to whitewashing, they become forgotten. They become erased. They become absent. Or at worst, they become treated with contempt. Now, we might not see this connection between life in Ballard and in Seattle and whitewashing, but the reality is that representation matters, right? That diversity of stories matters. It matters when you get to be the one to talk about your own heritage, when that isn't stripped away from you. So why this on Transfiguration Sunday? That's the question that we need to leave with here today. Why these two ideas on Transfiguration Sunday? Because the story that Jesus is telling his disciples is that even though they thought they were doing it right, they still didn't have the whole story. They needed a different piece of information in order to make sense of what it is that they were saying about God, about history, about what it means to be human. There was something that they didn't see. 
and they needed a different voice to come in and radically reorient their narrative to help them to make sense of what it was that God was doing. The transfiguration that happens on Transfiguration Sunday is not just the changing of Jesus into glory, but it's also the transfiguration of the gospel narrative itself. Because what Jesus is saying in this particular moment is that it's not going to be about tents. It's not going to be about dwelling places. It's not going to be about worship. Instead, it's going to be about death. It's going to be about resurrection. That's the dominant story. And it's the story that opens it up and makes room for all of the other stories to come in. Friends, we have heard the stories of glory long enough. The invitation that we have here on Transformation Sunday or Transfiguration Sunday is to make room. To make room. To say no to whitewashing. To open ourselves up to the bigness of the problem, the diversity of the problem, the opportunity that the problem might present to us, and to open ourselves up for the sake of hearing from God that, in fact, the story might be different than you always thought it was. The story might not be about winning, but it might be about suffering. The story might not be about glory, but it might be about death. The story might be about death, but then it might be about resurrection. But see, that puts us in a place where we have to wait. Wait on God. Wait on Jesus. Wait on the Spirit to lead. Friends, how do we put a stop to whitewashing? I don't know, but perhaps it starts with a story of transfiguration. Let us pray. Gracious and holy God, we thank you for this story and for the challenge that it brings before us today in terms of examining the expectations that we might have and the ways that we might need to change them, to offer them before you, to bring them to you so that you can say to us something new. So we pray that we would do that and that you would speak to us by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us stand.